This is Dina Weiss for Hadar on Parashat Nitzavim, taking the first step. Tshuva, the ability to repent and be reconciled with God and one another, is one of our religious lives' most powerful forces. When the Gemara in Yoma elaborates on the greatness of Tshuva, included is this formulation of Rabbi Levi. Amar Rabbi Levi, Gdola Tshuva Shemagat Ad Kisei Kavod. Rabbi Levi said, Tshuva is great, for it reaches to the throne of glory, as it says, Return Israel unto Hashem your God. According to Rabbi Levi, Tshuva is powerful because of the extent of its reach. It is able to impact God directly. When we do Tshuva, we do not merely move in God's directions, but find ourselves adjacent unto Him. Rabbi Zaks hears in Rabbi Levi's formulation and its proof text an echo of the words in our Parsha. V'shavta ad Adonai Elohecha, v'shamata v'kolo, k'chol asher anochi mitzavcha hayom, ata uvanecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nafshecha. V'shav Adonai Elohecha et shivutcha v'richamcha, v'shav v'kibetcha mikol ha'amim asher hefitzcha Adonai Elohecha shama. And you will return unto Hashem your God and will listen to his voice in accordance with everything that I command you today, you and your children, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And God will return your captivity and have mercy on you. He will gather you from all of the nations where Hashem your God has dispersed you. In the most straightforward reading of these verses, there is a reciprocity of return between us and God. We return to God by reforming our behavior and God returns us physically by restoring our captivity. However, Rabbi Sachs sees the parallel as being even more precise. Just as we do tshuva, so too God himself will do tshuva. G'dola tshuva tan shal Yisrael shehim o'rera tshuva lamala kiviachol, g'dara kol itaruta de la tata ha-me'oreret itaruta de la ela. The tshuva of Israel is great, for it awakens tshuva above as it were, like all awakening from below, which awakens awakening from above. The Kabbalistic notion of awakening from below and awakening from above argues that our human behavior can influence divine actions. Rabbi Sachs employs this idea to suggest that our act of tshuva inspires God to follow our example. By doing so, he takes Rabbi Levi's principle one step further. What makes tshuva so powerful is not merely that it reaches God, but that it influences God to change his own behavior. God sees us doing tshuva and feels compelled to do his own. But why does God need to repent? The source for this can be found in the Gemara and Sukkah. Amar of Chana Bar-Acha Amri Be'rav Arba'a mitcharet alei hana kadosh baruch hu shebra'am ve'elu hain galut kastim vishma'ilim v'yitzahara yitzahara dichtiv va'asher hare'oti Rav Chana Baracha said that it was said in the Beit Midrash, God regrets having created four things, and they are exile, the kastim, the Ishmaelim, and the evil inclination. The evil inclination, as it is written, that I have made evil. Rabbi Sachs reads this regret in its most technical sense, as a specific act of remorse, which constitutes a critical component of the tshuva process. Here, he sees God not only feeling badly for having created something that brings pain and difficulty to the lives of his children, but actually as beginning a process of tshuva 
with regard to it. God notices when we take responsibility for our poor behavior, and he responds in turn by acknowledging his role in our sin. Because we were willing to do tshuva, v'shav ta'ad Adonai, God also does tshuva, v'shav Adonai Elohecha. The image of God's doing tshuva and being inspired to do so by us is very beautiful, but deserves some probing. Once we grant that God bears some responsibility, that there is a reason that God himself must do tshuva, it is worth paying close attention to the sequence of responsibility. Chronologically speaking, it is accurate to say that God's fault lies at the beginning of the causal chain. God created us and implanted within us the desire for what we should not want and the ability to stray and get it. On the one hand, it is powerful and moving to think that we inspire God to do tshuva. But on the other hand, shouldn't the process be the other way around? Shouldn't God step up and acknowledge his role first? This question brings us to the real lesson to be learned from our inspiring God to do tshuva. It teaches that the person who makes the first step toward reconciliation need not be the one who started the conflict or the one most responsible for it. Often, in order to get the person who has wronged us to take responsibility for their actions, we have to be willing to make the first move. It's difficult, but critical, to move past the need for fairness, which makes us search for the one who started it, and instead be willing to be the one who does the work to end the conflict. This insight can help us understand a troubling passage from Sefer Breshit. When Sarah, then Sarai, is having difficulty conceiving, she gives her slave Hagar to Avraham, then Avram, to be a surrogate. The child that Hagar will bear will be considered Sarai's child. Though the plan works in that Hagar becomes pregnant, the pregnancy produces friction between the two women. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Then Sarai said to Avram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my slave girl to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May God judge between you and me. But Avram said to Sarai, Your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she ran away from her. The angel of God found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, slave girl of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am running away from my mistress Sarai. The angel of God said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
The angel of God also said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. The angel's response to Hagar seems a bit harsh. Hagar is so distraught at her treatment by her mistress that she runs away even though she is pregnant and a slave, without means to take care of herself or the child-to-be. Though the angel blesses her child, he does not seem to be sensitive to Hagar's distress. In fact, he tells her to go back home and to suffer even more at Sarai's hands. However, the language that he uses to tell her to go back home is shuvi, return, the language of tshuva. Perhaps we can apply the lessons that we have learned about repentance to this story and thereby understand it better. When the angel tells Hagar to swallow her pride and return home, he is not telling her that she is the only one who was wrong or that she is more at fault in any way. What he teaches her is that sometimes in order to resolve a difficult situation, it isn't helpful to be overly concerned with who is right. He is validating Hagar's perspective. Yes, going home would be inoy. It would be suffering a humiliation to go back and be the one to try to set things right. It might mean temporarily ignoring that the ill treatment she received may have been well out of proportion to what she deserved. But sometimes, for the greater good, you have to be the bigger person in addition to being the better person and be willing to humble yourself a little, maybe even submit and suffer a little. What this story also points to is that sometimes taking the high road, being willing to apologize first and to make concessions, might mean that you are going to be apologizing in a way where you don't really mean it. That can feel uncomfortable and even dishonest, but it may be necessary for the sake of opening the door. And in fact, the Nitzv's comments on this story make it clear that this is exactly Hagar's attitude. Her return and submission is purely instrumental, purely for show, but is still necessary. And crucially for us to note, effective. V'hit'ani tachat yadaha. V'hit'ani mimena mibaye. Suffer under her hand. It should have said suffer from her, like it said Sarai made her suffer. But the language of suffer from her would imply that she would want to suffer from her, like a slave who willingly accepts the word of her mistress because she belongs to her. But to Hagar, he said that God had actually listened to her suffering, as the angel would continue to tell her, that the child she would bear would be the progenitor of a great nation. So he told her that she should pretend like she was being suppressed under Sarai's hand, and Sarai would think that Hagar was willingly submitting to her. And in truth, after Hagar gave birth, Sarah did not use her like a slave, but as a handmaiden. As when she said, asking Abraham to evict Hagar and Yishmael, evict the handmaiden. According to the Nitziv, Hagar's attitude of obeisance and her humbling herself before her mistress was a ruse. But it is a successful ruse, 
that leads her to the outcome of an improved relationship with Sarai. No, they don't emerge as equals, but Hagar does improve her standing. The example of Hagar also shows how difficult the apology process itself can be, how hard it can be to step back into a situation that can be extremely painful and to make yourself vulnerable in that way. It is always difficult to make the first move, to say, I'm sorry, to say, I'm concerned about you, to say, I love you. We're afraid of being humiliated, afraid of being rejected, afraid to sacrifice our dignity by doing what we shouldn't have to. But the lesson of this week's Parsha is not to focus on the difficulty of the process, but instead to focus on the possible outcome, the reconciliation, the improved relationship, or at least the clarity of finally understanding where each of us is coming from. One way in which we protect ourselves from taking that first step is by telling ourselves that we shouldn't have to, that it isn't our responsibility. This may be correct. It may not be your responsibility, but that isn't the most productive way to think about it. It is not your obligation, it is your opportunity. Tshuva is great, according to Rabbi Levi, not because it is necessary or obligatory, but because it is powerful. It has an impact on God and inspires God to do tshuva himself. Opening up the channels of communication elicits a response, one that is usually, though not always, productive and restoring. We see this dynamic at play earlier in Sefer Dvarim, in a beautiful set of verses that describes the mutuality of respect and affection that can exist between God and his chosen people. Et Adonai ha'emarta hayom liyot lecha l'Elohim, v'lalecha bidracha v'lishmor chuka v'mitzvotav v'mishpatav v'lishma b'kolo, v'adonai ha'emircha hayom liyot lo la'am segula ka'asher di berlach v'lishmor kol mitzvotav. You have designated Hashem to be your God, to walk in his paths, to keep his laws, commandments, and statutes, and to listen to his voice. And God has designated you today to be his treasured people, like he spoke to you, and to keep all of his commandments. The term that I have translated as designated literally means to cause to say. By declaring my allegiance to God, I compel God to declare God's allegiance to me. In these verses as well, the awakening comes from below as we declare our fidelity to God et Adonai ha'emarta hayom before God declares his treasuring of us v'adonai ha'emircha hayom. We make the first move of declaring ourselves God's people before God adopts us as his own. But that does not detract from the beauty and the inspirational quality of the mutuality of this image or of the actual relationship. Wishing you a Shabbat of important first steps. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening to our weekly Divrei Torah. To see more from our archive, please visit hadar.org slash Torah.